0: Sometimes global crises can reveal structural weaknesses and lead to long-term change. Social distancing and limiting our contacts with others will be a fact of life for a long time to come. But what exactly will be the implications of the coronavirus pandemic? Will this crisis transform our economy, our society, our democracy? Or will we return to normal, almost as if nothing ever happened?
1: Plans to reopen the country are close to being finalised.
0: And what about us as individuals? What effect will it have on the way we live, the way we work and interact? One thing I think coronavirus crisis has already proved is that there really is such a thing as society. I'm Matthew Taylor, the chief executive of the RSA here in London. My organisation has been at the forefront of social change for over 260 years, and over the coming weeks, I'll be speaking to scholars, business leaders, politicians, journalists and more, and asking them one key question. How could, and how should the pandemic change our world? Welcome. To Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. I'm delighted to be joined by my good friend Ben Page from Ipsos Mori. So Ben, I know who you are, but why don't you tell the world exactly what your job title is?
1: I'm Ben Page. I'm the chief executive of Ipsos Mori. I've been there for about 32 years. We're a very large research organisation in Britain, about 1,500 people and about 19,000 people globally.
0: So tell me, Ben, how has the crisis affected you personally?
1: Well, I mean, I'm just really blessed to have a house and a garden. And I think you just value the small things, being able to go to the grocer or the butcher or the fishmonger and get some food. And I mean, I'm eating and drinking well and doing more exercise than I've ever done in my life, partly as an excuse to get out of the house. But I find it weird, actually, the time is flying by, which is interesting, because our Chinese colleagues told us that that was exactly what was going to happen. And it was hard to imagine, but it is, you know, it seems to be like two weeks when it's been six or something or seven for me now
0: it's one of the peculiarities isn't it of this or poignancies of this crisis which is that on the one hand it reminds us of what we have in common because we all worry about our health or we worry about our relatives or whatever it might be but on the other hand we have to continuously exercise our imaginations to realize that those of us in nice houses with the gardens who are knowledge workers You know, we can take this in our stride and indeed enjoy elements of it. It's very, very different living in overcrowded accommodation with, you know, three children and one laptop or whatever it might be.
1: Absolutely, in the polling that we're doing every week, we've got twenty-one percent who say that they're finding it really, really hard to cope. And of course, predictably, it's younger people, people on low incomes, people with kids at home who are feeling that. So, yeah, being a knowledge worker, reasonably well established, is a blessing. Although, of course, just running a large organisation, as I'm sure you know, it just reacting to the crisis and massive sudden drops in revenue and having to furlough hundreds and hundreds of people, it's taken a lot of time. I've just taken a 20% pay cut and we're consulting with the staff about cutting the pension contributions, et cetera, to get us through this, to try and maintain everybody's jobs. But the great difficulty is, of course, knowing what the new normal will be like or whenever we'll get to it. It looks as though there will be a long interim period before we're anything like we were in 2019.
0: I don't know if you agree, but I think the critical thing here is for your employees to feel that they are part of the conversation about what you're doing, to be open about the choices that you have and to engage them in the nature of those choices. My sense is that when you do that, people understand the reality and, and they recognise the need to, to take measures.
1: No, absolutely. It's funny, actually, but because of the technology, whereas before I would do all staff meetings roughly every three months, now I'm doing them every single week. And in the same way, in a a small way, but in the same way that people rush to support the government of their country, we've seen massive rises in ratings of Boris Johnson, of Macron in France, Conte in Italy. And Angela Merkel currently walks on water with 79% satisfied. In a very tiny but similar way, people support chief executives who are visible, transparent, empathetic, and clear at times like this. And certainly that's been my experience. And I think that, again, the literature tends to show that. So people want to hear it from the horse's mouth, but it does take a lot of time, of course, to do that. And you're having to spend time with your management team on a much more regular basis. And in our case, the numbers change on a daily basis.
0: Well, that opens up exactly what I want us to talk about, Ben, which is how institutions are changing and whether institutions continue with those changes after the crisis, how our feelings are changing and whether those changes continue after the crisis. So let me ask you the question, Ben Page, how do you think the world could and the world should change after this crisis?
1: Let's stick with could for the moment. We'll come on to should and I'll get my um, rose-tinted spectacles out. I mean, we go into the crisis with large numbers of people unhappy with the status quo. One of the biggest things in my working life has been to see the loss of the future in Western societies since the crash of 2008. So before 2008, most people believed that their children would be better off than them. Since 2008, that's changed. And in Britain at the moment, we have 45% of the population who expected, even before COVID-19, which we'll come to. For their children to be poorer than them. In 2003, it was only 12% of the population. And that's a massive psychological shift. So that's the precondition. We had already massive pent up demand for increases in public spending in many Western countries, not necessarily agreement on how to pay for it, but certainly pent up demand for public spending. And so you go into this crisis and there of course those of us who are more sort of I don't know hopeful it's a great chance of course to take stock and decide what sort of world we would like to come out with after this virus sweeps through and changes everything however before we go there I think the first thing is to say that we can even begin to really predict what's going to happen is really difficult we can speculate but I was looking at some work on long-term shifts in British values first of all back to 1999 and then back to 1989. So 1989, we've still got the Soviet Union, there's no internet, and there are many things that really haven't shifted in that time, things like feeling overwhelmed by technology, believing that you want to slow down the pace of your life. These things seem to be perpetual, and sometimes we create patterns and think, oh yes, all of this tech, surveillance, big data in the last decade has led to sort of massive changes in attitudes, but I think this is a key point. Values change quite slowly. So, you know, how people feel about gay marriage, how they feel about the death penalty, what sort of society they want do they want to be more Danish or more American? Those things don't flip usually overnight. Now, how we live can clearly flip overnight, as we've already seen. And, and of course, during World War II, Britain went into World War II as one sort of society and came out of World War II after six years with plans to be a very different sort of place with the creation of the NHS, the modern welfare state education system, etc. But I think at the moment, you know, the classic problem, we're too close to the trees to see the wood. However, you can see things that were already happening that have been massively accelerated or exacerbated by the crisis, so expensive offices in the middle of big cities—they're currently all empty, and many businesses are functioning without them. Do we go back into those offices after this? Not clear. One of our offices in Oxford, the lease expired. Everybody was at home. You know, we probably won't ever have an office in Oxford again. Everybody will work from home in that part of our little empire. So I think that you know, there's that. Will you be comfortable on crowded underground trains or in crowded restaurants and theatres, cinemas? anytime soon. Again, not clear. Online shopping, been up 27% demanded for that and for online banking. And there's more demand than the infrastructure can possibly meet. Lots of older people using FaceTime and other technologies they haven't bothered to get familiar with in the past. So almost certainly that move to digital, the, the final crunch on many sort of retailers looks to be you know, happening. So you can see some of those things, but whether we are going to move to this is where we come on to government, bigger government permanently, really hard to tell. But certainly, there is an expectation of government to do something. The fact that the government of Mrs. May had no magic money tree, and now Rishi Sunak in Britain has found not only a magic money tree, but fed its steroids, uh, it's extraordinary. And, it, and the question is, when furlough ends on the 1st of July, uh, currently, uh, by some estimates, 25% of the private sector workforce is currently on furlough. Are we going to accept a lot of those people suddenly being made redundant? If one in 10 people globally work in hospitality and travel, those industries are basically paralysed for some time to come. Are we going to accept that? Or are we going to expect to run deficits of the kind that we haven't seen since World War II long into the future? The hangover from 2008 was pretty dramatic in its consequences. It looks likely that the hangover from COVID-19 will be similar. Whether we have the will to then remake the world as we would like it, I think is much more difficult. So Ben,
0: we have a kind of way of thinking about change at the RSA, which is to say that change out of crisis is most likely when three conditions apply. Firstly, that there was already a latent buildup of support for change and also the capacity to change. People had ideas about what you might do. Secondly, during the crisis, the desire, the emotion, the affect gets reinforced, but also in certain ways, as you've been describing, the new world gets prefigured in the attitudes and the practices and the innovations which people use in the crisis. The third part is there is the political coalition, but already the policy ideas, the actual innovations that you need to implement in that period of time when people's minds are open to quite radically different ways of doing things. Now, you've described one element of this, which is before this crisis, there was already a desire to enhance the capacity of the public sector to grow the state and if it's right and of course it is right that the, one of the critical challenges for us coming out of this is to have some kind of plan to get to fiscal balance does your polling strongly suggest that people will say if we've got to choose between cutting or tax rises we'll take the tax rises
1: well, certainly before COVID-19, they were saying they will take the tax rises. I think the challenge, Matthew, is that it's very inchoate, and, it, and probably in World War II it was too, to be honest. So the public doesn't have a worked out plan. They love the National Health Service they did before this, and afterwards it's going to be refused nothing, I would almost suspect. But on the other hand, you know, politics is, is about personalities, and it is about timing, and it is about chance. Given Labour's massive defeat in December 2019, you know, at the moment, the Conservatives, of course, are slight of foot and they're now doing things that in his wildest dreams, John Macdonald would not have ever, you know, even even postulated. But it's not clear that the public is ready for, you know, much, much higher levels of taxation of the sort that we might need if we're going to actually try and deal with the deficits that we're now going to be running, quite frankly. And one of the reasons will be, of course, that they feel squeezed themselves. This is the sort of double whammy that we're in. I mean, it's been interesting looking at our Chinese colleagues, because even though people are now being allowed out in China, they aren't necessarily spending for two reasons. First of all, they're still worried about the economic aftershocks and whether their own job is secure. And in Britain, two thirds of us are worried about whether our job is secure or not. And the other thing is that the virus is endemic and there is no vaccine. And so they're still worried about catching it. And that means that large parts of the economy are only opening very slowly. And we're a much more consumer service-based economy than China, which, of course, is more heavy industry and manufacturing, etc. So it's certainly true that in policy circles, lobby groups for all sorts of interests will be making the case for things to be different. That the social care crisis that was clearly visible for decades before we got into this has in a way, it's sort of continued in a sense because we've got massive deaths in care homes, inadequate PPE as far as I can see. And yet, yet again, it hasn't cut through as an issue for the public that finally something must be done. It's very complicated. And they still, of course, the public don't understand our, our the social care system anyway. Why should they until they need to use it? So I'm sort of pessimistic, but I can imagine a world where we decide that we need to stimulate economic activity, we decide not to do what happened in 2008, which was massively to resume pumping carbon into the atmosphere by just turning everything back on again, getting everybody flying, building as fast as possible. But I can see, unfortunately, governments and indeed workers being desperate for any sort of activity. This is, of course, the perfect moment if you're concerned about climate change, which most people say they are, and indeed unites the world to start thinking about what a reset in the economy might actually look like. We've got the Milanese saying they're not going to reopen the streets of central Milan to cars. You know, great. This is a time to do it. The question is whether the people who are just about managing the crisis have enough bandwidth to actually start thinking about all of these things before the sort of the winter is on us and people are just desperate for wages of any kind.
0: Well, that question of giving people dealing with the crisis, the kind of headspace, the bandwidth to think about the future, that's kind of how we've reoriented the very purpose of the RSA over the last few weeks. Leadership is a really big part of this. You talked earlier, Ben, about the kind of different levels of support for leaders. We know that it is generally the case that when you go into crisis, the popularity of leaders go up because we see more of them and because we rely on them. And almost in a sense, we project onto them what we need them to be at that moment. But that effect doesn't necessarily last that long. Are you noticing kind of interesting elements of what we want from leaders and how we're perceiving a leader's?
1: Well, I mean, I think they first of all want to know that somebody's in charge and somebody has a plan. They want somebody to appear to be in control. And so, you know, when government does very clear and simple things like lockdown, it's clear that something is happening. The information campaign is effective in its repetitiveness. And the other thing, as you know, that expectations of political leadership are so low that in terms of, you know, all of the possibilities that there might be for how we should reshape our economy or our society after this, Of course, most people are just concerned, will I be able to pay my bills? Will I have a job? Will I be safe? And so they aren't thinking about what's the government's plan. There is space here for a political leader to start to sketch these things out, and it will be hard. But I do think this has still been a relatively short, sharp shock. And my question is, you know, if we were suddenly all told that we can go back to being how we were in February, but with sunshine and, and warmer temperatures, you know, most people will take that deal, quite frankly.
0: I'm absolutely hearing you being the voice of realism, but yet crises do lead to change. And we did a pretty, you know, quick and dirty poll, which found a remarkable number of people who said they didn't want things to go back to how they were before. And they particularly focused on things like air quality and neighbourliness yeah. And stuff like that. So, what is it that leaders or anybody else can do to? widen the Overton window, to be ready to say, look, you know, actually, if you do want social care to be different, if you do want a more socially just society, if you do want to respond to climate change, then you're going to have to do radical stuff. You've done radical stuff for the last few months. Well, it shows you can do it. Let's carry on doing it, but this time in the pursuit of long-term goals rather than a short-term crisis.
1: Yes, and I think there's real space in that. And, And look, you know, some of the things that Britain has done, we're one of the leaders in the OECD for wind power and wave power, Etc., for renewables. And we've done that without people having to even make great sacrifices of any kind. They've paid a little bit more in their bills to build in the capacity. So there have been long periods now where we've relied entirely on renewables. That's amazing, you know, and we've done that. So, of course, the public likes that sort of thing, being told that they can't go on holiday much anymore, which may happen as many of the smaller airlines go bust. And you'll suddenly find that British Airways is the only game in town and doesn't fly to as many places as some of the competitors. We'll see what happens on some of that. I mean, I believe in political leadership. And there is a time where you could be starting to talk about the story. My, I suppose my Boring realism is that people haven't, in some ways, gone through enough yet. They still want to go back to the old world. I mean, remember, in the same polling that I've been talking about, we've got three quarters of people in Britain who say the system is rigged to advantage the rich and powerful. We've got three quarters who say that you know, wealthy people should pay more taxes, three quarters roughly who say that high levels of inequality are bad for society. But when it comes to you personally paying a lot more tax, I mean, we, again, we've asked that specifically, and people do say that they would pay more tax for the NHS, a hypothecated tax for the NHS would be a no-brainer in my personal view, particularly the situation that we find ourselves in now. But, you know, I think that the underlying reality is, of course, that the last crisis has seen, as you know, no real increase in real wages for the better part of a decade, the longest period since the Napoleonic Wars that the same type of thing had happened. And so people, you know, they are worried about themselves. It's not like, unfortunately, 1997, where suddenly people, you know, know that something needs to happen after 18 years and real challenges in public services. Public services are under huge pressure, but they were fully funded, arguably, as recently as 2010. And this, you know, it's 10 years ago. It's not 18 years or whatever as it was in 1997. So I just think we might need a bit longer. Although, again, you know, Boris Johnson could undoubtedly come out with some plans. They may not be ones that, that will be as egalitarian as you might like, but there will be a real space for the government to say that we need to do things differently now. I mean, effectively, they have. And how on earth the economics of the large Western democracies are going to work after this just 10% increase in spending. Is going to be amazing. But I mean, I'm worried about what the long term unraveling is. The unraveling of the 2008 crash and and its impact on us took some time to become visible. And I fear that the COVID-19 similarly, we're absolutely right to start thinking about it, but we're too close to it almost to know what its features will actually be as as it sort of starts to play out.
0: This question of leadership, of politics, and as you've implied, Ben, of the challenge of getting people to recognise and to reconcile their social aspirations with what it actually means for them leads me to think about deliberation. It leads me to think about, is this a time when deliberative democratic methods, which we know are good places to get citizens to face up to difficult trade-offs. I mean, one of the things that is quite consistent in deliberative processes is people tend to go into the process saying it's all the government's fault, and they tend to come out at the end saying, well, actually, it's quite a lot to do with us, isn't it? It's quite a lot to do with how we are as citizens. Do you think this could be an opportunity for us to mainstream deliberative methods as an inherent part of our democracy particularly because politicians will need us to face up to things. And and how do you get people to face up to things? Because in normal politics, well, we know it doesn't really happen.
1: I mean, I'm a big, you know, I've been doing deliberative work for decades. The first one I ever did was actually under John Major's government for the Cabinet Office in the very last days of John Major in early 1997. And we've just been doing some on how NHS data should be shared or not inside London with Imperial College. I'm a big fan. My only slight concern about it, so I think it should, I think politicians hate giving away power to it, and cynical media can easily take a pop at it, but there is a bigger problem than either of those two things, and although getting the politicians to cede power to anything is always a challenge, and they talk about devolution and localism in opposition as we know, and then when it comes to it, it turns out to be much more difficult. But I think the challenge with deliberation to me is how you do it at scale without avoiding it being captured by relatively small interest groups. And that, to me, is the central challenge, because even in Porto Alegre, which has been doing participatory budgeting for decades, when we polled there as Ipsos Brazil, and we did this in a number of Brazilian cities, we found that most people living in Porto Alegre, which is much heralded in some circles as an example of deliberation, of course, the majority of people living in Porto Alegre were not aware that their council had been doing this for a long time or that it was that they liked the idea. So that's my challenge is how do you do it at scale? I, I think it's still a good thing and it should be done anyway, but expecting people, enough people to engage a bit and realise that actually they want contradictory things and democracy doesn't ever give you exactly what you want anyway. It gives you bits of what you want and get them to be comfortable with that rather than, you know, our more representative democracy, which, I mean, ultimately, the interesting thing about representative democracy is that everybody criticises it, everybody slags off our politicians, etc. But when it comes down to it, what's interesting is actually, and I've also found this with some deliberation, if you ask people to balance the budget for their local authority, for example, we've done this on a number of occasions – if you do it with a large number of people and you explain the choices, say, that a local authority might be having to make between school meals, school places, libraries, subsidising bus services, social care of the elderly, etc. Literally, in my experience, up to half the public, a genuine representative sample of the public, rather than people that you can get to come to one of these things, which is another issue, they will get angry at being asked to make those choices and ultimately, when you, when you sort of push them, it comes down to, well, that's what politicians are for, you know, to govern is to choose. And those bastards are going to have to make the difficult decisions. And there is a real element of that. And I, I agree with you that we want people to take more responsibility, but it's a two way street. And again, not everybody wants to.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think any advocate of deliberation is not arguing that it should replace representation, or even that deliberative fora should make final decisions, but just that their deliberations, what they come out with, might legitimise some of the hard choices we face. Ben, I've got one last question, well, two last questions for you. But I think I've spoken to you in the past, and you've told me that amongst middle class people, amongst opinion formers, there are kind of elements of post-materialist aspiration and thinking out there. Do you think that if that was right, that the crisis might, in some ways, increase that post-materialist mindset?
1: Well, I'll frame it slightly differently. And I think that is that you've got a lot of people who, if they haven't lost their jobs, they've actually got the same income, they will have cut their spending quite markedly. The money that they used to spend on disposable fashion, the money they spent on eating out all the time on some of the things you do to make life in a busy big city bearable, almost, all of those things have gone. People have returned by necessity, to, you know, spending lots of time cooking at home, enjoying books, reading and gardening have both gone up massively, almost as much as sort of social media. There is a sense that for some time, and partly because of fear of endemic COVID-19, partly because of not wanting to go back to high levels of spend, because actually people are going to start saving money because they're going to feel they're worried about the future. So there is a, there are some forces, shall we say, that will lead us to more simple pleasures, I'm not sure that that means permanently we, we're going to sort of become the good life or something like that. But I think there are some, uh, certainly at the moment, of course, people are perhaps reappraising, did I really need to go out for dinner five times a week? And did I really need to get taxis everywhere? And actually, it seems, you know, having quite a satisfactory life, I'm very lucky, you know, blah, blah, as I am. So I can see a bit of that, but I don't know again, if it's enough there's another trend globally that we've seen, which is the rise of hedonism, just saying, look, I, tomorrow will take care of itself. The most important thing is just to have a great time today. And that went from 50 percent of the world in 2013 to 58 percent last year. And I could see if people were told the airports are all open and everywhere is now COVID free, you could imagine the roads towards airports would be packed. But there is something. And I think there is certainly a period of sort of perhaps reappraisal, people take, living more simply, holidaying in Britain because they won't be able to just fly everywhere all the time, quite likely. So it's possible. It's possible. But I'm not sure that our sort of Those of us who do love bling are suddenly going to renounce it overnight because of this.
0: Well, on the point, I've finally, after five years, learned how to sing and play the guitar at the same time during this. Have you developed any new skills or enthusiasms in the crisis?
1: I'm afraid I'm like most people in lockdown. And this is, again, what we learned from our Chinese colleagues, that they actually said if you were planning to get through those box sets, read Tolstoy in full or uh, learn to play the ukulele, Start immediately because otherwise you'll find the time has flown by and you've done nothing. And sadly, I am plowing through a French historian called Ferdinand Bordel on his history of the 16th century in Europe, which is great. and I'm getting a little bit more progress on that. but to be honest, I'm on calls from eight o'clock in the morning until eight o'clock at night as part of a global management team of a, of a large multinational trying to deal with this as it sort of rolls through. So I'm afraid I've failed, Matthew, I'm afraid. I should go back with new vigor to something. I am pruning and cutting my garden nicely.
0: I don't think anyone's ever going to match on this series Kevin Rudd's answer, which was that he had returned to read the core texts of Chinese Marxism in their original Chinese. (laughs) Ben Page, having emphasised as you just have how little time you have, we're incredibly grateful to you for sharing some of it with us. Do stay healthy. Thank you. And to you. Bye bye. Bye. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future, but we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it, and we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come also the rsa fellowship is a global network of problem solvers we'd love you to join our community today to stay connected inspired and motivated in the months ahead you can learn more about the fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio but for now thanks from me matthew taylor and my producer craig templeton smith